right. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Money Beyond Borders. Today's episode, we're going to be discussing how risk plays into the decisions we make as individuals and as families and as communities. In particular, we've thought about a framework for de-risking any situation, whether it's a financial decision, there is risk everywhere. There is no zero risk. And having a system or just a framework for navigating how and when to act after we've thought and done our due diligence and research and prepared for the impact and consequences of our decisions, the only thing we can hope for is minimize risk. Riding your bike, driving your car, everything has risk. How do I de-risk that? The sooner you come to terms with that concept, the easier life is. We're constantly making even subconscious de-risking decisions on a daily basis. You wake up and there's a number of things that we all do. We take for granted. We don't even think twice about doing them, yet there is risk inherent to them. When we go through this framework, obviously we don't want to paralyze people to say, oh shit, I have to think about everything before I act. I, mean, I can't put on pants without thinking about what pant I need to wear. But it at least elevates your self-awareness for like the bigger decision-making processes that impact your life in a more fundamental way than what shirt you're wearing for the day. Every decision we ever make in our lives are driven by our why. We've got this guttural instinct as humans to make decisions based off of our gut. There's been research that shows most decisions, even by executives, right, data-driven organizations, they're made by people's gut. It's how they feel at the end of the day, after the data has been presented, perhaps. But there's always this why, right? There's this gut. Do I feel, feel good about the decision, about this investment of my time and energy and resources? Always have to think about your why, because as you go through this framework for de-risking, you will run into challenges. There may be questions that you don't have an answer to, or they may be not fully defined in a way that makes you a little uncomfortable. And you're going to have to develop a relationship with your gut because your why is ultimately what's going to drive you to act in the end. All the numbers can work. All the questions can have great answers, yet your gut does not feel right. That's something beyond the framework that's telling you, hey, I don't feel good about this. That's something that you need to be cognizant of and true to yourself because this framework starts falling apart if you lose trust in it and your gut's the first one that's going to lose trust in it. So you need to make sure that your gut is involved in the process from the get-go. There are five major questions in order that you should ask yourself before you act. Now, obviously, it's very simplified, this model, but I have used it myself. Brad has used it to pour himself a cup of coffee this morning. We were able to get him on the show on time. It doesn't take too much time to get through the questions. To hit the high-level questions, and we're going to go into depth on each one a little bit. So the first question, after you've discovered your gut, like, oh, I want to be involved in this, right? I'm excited about it. There's something that motivates me some way to get involved in whatever this potential action can be. And we've made this abstract enough so you can apply this to a personal finance decision or something more personal, like a relationship or what type of lifestyle that you'd like to live. We try to make this agnostic and generalized as possible so it can be useful for the most of you out there. First off, are there positive outcomes that you seek from the decision to be made. The second one is, are you educated in the subject matter? So if there are positive outcomes you seek from the previous question, you decide to proceed, the next sequential question you should ask yourself before you act is, are you educated in the subject matter? And if yes, then the next question is, do the numbers work? If the numbers still work, and you've already answered yes to the previous two questions, the next question you need to ask yourself is, can you reverse 
your commitment. This is about control. The risk is directly related to how much can you control your involvement in whatever this decision you choose to make. And if you can reverse your commitment, then you've gotten pretty far. You're at the last and final question before you should make a decision about action. Can you handle the worst case scenario. It's often one that we have a very hard time. Even professional investors, everyone has trouble with this. This is usually the blocker that brings you back to the beginning of the de-risking framework that these five questions encompass. So let's start off with the first one here. Are there positive outcomes you seek? It's a little bit subjective, but for me, it's very important that particularly in investment, there's some social benefit outcome. There's gotta be some sort of improvement in the world from my involvement, whether that's my marriage or if it's an investment, that's key. I need to have that as one of my positive outcomes. If it's a financial one, obviously there needs to be some minimum return on my investment. I'm gonna put some time in, put some capital in. I need to get something out of it. Coupling doing good in the world and doing good with my capital that is what would govern the answer for me, Brad. To use the financial example that you stated from an investment standpoint, are there positive outcomes you seek? And it's such a fundamental question. We all skip over it from time to time. You go into the stock market thinking it's always going to go up. Assume that the value will be greater down the line than it is today. That's why we invest. That's why we make key decisions like this. It's important to remember, going back to that why, is there some end goal to this? And to clearly define what that is. Because if you can't define it, it makes it more difficult to stay on the path. If I haven't stated that I expect an 8% return on a stock over the course of its life, then it becomes difficult to stick with the stock market, knowing that over time it will yield a certain level of return. So if you forget what the why is, it can make it difficult down the line. So it's always important to answer this first question honestly and truthfully. I like relationships as analogy as well. This framework's a model. It's not perfect but it gets you thinking the right things before you act. Next question, are you educated in the subject matter? Let's talk about real estate. There's a property that you'd like to buy and maybe fix it up and maybe rent it out. That's what you're interested in. Are you educated in the matter of real estate? If yes, well, how educated are you? You've got to be very truthful with yourself in terms of where is the threshold of comfort for your knowledge of the investment? I want to understand the laws that govern that asset. What governs what I can and cannot do with that rental property. That's one example of education that I'd like to have a minimum understanding of before I even proceed with the rest of my de-risking framework. I want to understand what can work against me, the scope, the extent of the ecosystem of my rental property. And another thing that would also play into that is, okay, well, where are mortgage rates today? Because if I buy a piece of property and I rent it out, but I've got some leverage on it, right? I financed, I got a little bit of debt on there. I'm gonna to have to understand a mortgage and that debt instrument and how it's going to influence my experience with the asset. Tenants stop paying rent, okay? What do I do? The more educated you can be on an investment, the better you generally will do. You do not need to go to school or get a PhD. I feel strongly that self-teaching is the best type of teaching because you remember it longer. It's something that you got dirty with your hand learning. So you are most likely to have an intimate understanding. And that's what I mean by getting educated in subject matter. Beyond the textbook, I've spoken to some realtors for the rental property. I've spoken to a mortgage broker. This is something that's potentially I want to get involved with. Or maybe no. Maybe you've hit a block and you said, you know what? I can't learn this. It's too complex. I'm not feeling comfortable with the level of risk because 
my education is so far away from where I want it to be. Brad, you said something about, can you learn it? If the answer is no, it doesn't mean you can't get involved, but if you can't learn it and you don't have enough time to learn enough of it to feel comfortable, there's some alternatives that involve relationships. You not having to be the bearer of the knowledge. This podcast, for example, there are different skill sets that you and I have. We do discuss over the phone, you and I, when we're making big decisions, we'll talk it through as a sounding board and helping to shape what that process is. If you apply that same logic to other decisions, if whether it be a financial decision, I'd call you up and I'd say, hey, this is what I'm looking at. Do you see it differently or is there something else that I'm missing? You don't always have to have all of the answers. It's the same thing in the workplace too. If I don't have the answer, it doesn't mean that the project stops. It means that I go find someone on my team or perhaps on another team who might be able to help me. It's the same thing here. Just because I don't know it myself doesn't mean that we can't go out and find someone who does. It comes back to trust. If you can't learn it or you don't have the time or this is the extent to where I'm going to be educated. Beyond that, I want to focus on a certain aspect of this investment. I need to trust and delegate a piece of this process to someone else. These larger decisions, you know, even with a spouse, you start making a decision about how you guys want to move forward. There may be things that you are less educated in than your spouse. And that's where trust comes in. Brad just mentioned our friendship. There's things that I've experienced myself where I've got a particularly intimate understanding of risk in a certain domain. And he'll call me up. We have that trust. We've developed that trust. There's a basis upon which we can move forward and answer this question for Brad and keep him moving throughout the de-risking framework. Now, moving on, let's assume you've met your positive outcomes, you're educated, or you've figured out how to move past the subject matter intimacy, right? Being comfortable with the investment you're getting involved with. If you can get through that, the next question is going to be, do the numbers work? You need to be educated in the subject matter in order to be able to do the numbers. If you're doing a rental investment property, I'll continue that concrete example. You're going to need to check, what's my debt I'm going to pay? What's my monthly expense for that mortgage on this property. That's going to be one of those fundamental expenses. And then you're going to look at the revenue, which is going to be that rental income from the tenants that you're going to screen before you sign them into a lease. But are you going to manage the property? Well, then you might need to put a property management figure in there. And I encourage you putting a property management number, even if you are doing it yourself, that is going to be critical because then there's property taxes, there's insurance. Details in the numbers come from an education of the subject matter. Getting those right are pretty critical. This is binary, right or wrong. The numbers help you de-risk it. And this is where your gut can be put into check. This is a very concrete, do the numbers work? You're putting your numbers down, whether it's in spreadsheet, back of the envelope. I recommend trying to do most of this in your mind because if the numbers work in your head, you're going to feel comfortable doing them on paper. If they don't or they're way off and you've got to do some finagling to make the numbers work, your gut's going to be a little bit on edge. This is a great question because it really puts fact and data into the decision process. If the numbers don't work, is there a scenario in which they do work? That's where you're reaching that break-even point. You're like, ah, this isn't great. Ah. You might be breaking even on the investment and you're putting all this time in. Maybe part of the equation is, well, I want to get educated. My education through the investment makes the break-even point more palpable for me. But if there's a very rare case where the numbers will work, you really need to go back to your why because most likely the numbers will not work. Even if you found a scenario in which they would work, the likelihood of those numbers working out just perfectly for you is low. If that's not the first thing that comes to mind and it's hard to get them to work, most likely it's not, right? Murphy's Law. Things will go wrong. That's how you should think about de-risking. There's things you can't control. When they go wrong, you need to be prepared. And so if the numbers don't work out of the get-go, you haven't even made a decision yet. 
and the numbers could go bad, you got to think about whether or not you should get involved. Moving on, after the numbers work, can you reverse your commitment? So now you found the numbers work, feeling good, you're feeling educated, feeling like there's going to be some positive outcome to this decision if you decide to proceed. But now you need to think about your control over your investment. And whether it's your time or it's your capital, you've got to think hard about can you reverse your commitment, right? Back to the rental property. When you sign that contract to purchase a rental property, that's an irreversible commitment. That's a very difficult thing to get out, right? It's illiquid. We'll talk about liquidity in a future episode and really what that means. But very practically, something being illiquid means you can't get out of it. It's almost solid. You're baked into it. It's like you're trapped. I don't mean to induce anxiety, but it's true that if you sign a purchase agreement for a piece of property, and you go to closing and you decide to reverse, there will be consequences and they may be high financial ones, fines, penalties, fees, and also a general reputation hit that could potentially preclude you from investing in that market that you're trying to participate in. There's high stakes with this reversibility of your commitment because even if you thought the reversibility of your commitment is like, oh yeah, I can get out of a sales contract. Problem with that, again, your reputation will be tainted depending on how you navigate that and then how you get out of the commitment. So even if you can reverse your commitment, it's something to think about the implications of that reversal. If you cannot get out of that commitment, purchasing a property and you've gotten pretty far, you've done everything you can do, you've looked at the property, inspected it, done your due diligence, talk about due diligence in another episode, but basically your research, done your homework on all the above, the numbers working in the market and everything, can you reverse your commitment? I'm gonna say no, because what it helps you think about is the engagement how long is your engagement? If you can't reverse your commitment and the engagement is long, let's take 20, 30 years, which is a typical mortgage. You've signed the paperwork for a rental property. You're essentially marrying that property with debt and you are responsible for that debt. That's arguably a large responsibility. Marriage, we can use that in this framework too, is a huge commitment. The engagement is long. You can't reverse your commitment. So what do you do when things go bad? How do you manage that? Oh, you can handle anything. You can fix toilets. You can fix roofs that just got hit by a hailstorm. You got to think about the risk there and what can go wrong because it's not a question of if things will go wrong. It's a question of when. If the engagement is pretty short, you can get out. It essentially makes your commitment less impactful to your future because you're able to get out of it pretty quickly. For example, if you want to flip a property, usually that engagement is short. So that short period of time should limit your exposure to a loss because it's a short engagement. Even if you can't reverse the commitment, we'll talk more about that and how that went wrong for me in the past. Now that you've gotten to the final question, you've been able to identify and size up the control you have over this decision you're going to make and the outcomes of the decision and the implications of those decisions. If you get to the final question, it is the worst case scenario question. Can you handle the worst case scenario? This question is very difficult for even the most professional investors, the most wise, veteran, experienced investors to answer. And the reason why is because a lot of the times you're not entirely sure. You don't know. And that uncertainty can affect your gut. A lot of investors who are experienced, they say, I'm not as prepared to handle the worst case scenario as I would like to be. Like, well, I want to get involved, but ah, if all hell breaks loose, I'm going to lose everything and possibly a friend or a family member or a very good business partner or the investors or whoever I've brought to the table. That's a heavy burden. We all make decisions. And so how do you get past this question? How do you get to a yes? Can I insure against this worst case scenario? Is that something I can put things in place, a system or plan B 
and see in place in order to prevent or avoid or mitigate the fallout from the worst case scenario. What happens here is you start lessening the impact of things going bad for you and for those involved and those impacted by your decision you're about to make. We'll probably have a whole episode on how you can apply insurance in ways that are not just the typical insurance, health or auto. There's insurance that is not called insurance, acting as a form of insurance for you and the decision you're making. A prenup. If you have been using this framework and been following from the first question to the last, and you're thinking about committing to a spouse, what would be your insurance? A prenup. Why? That prenup would be if things went really bad and we had to get divorced, would all our assets get divided in two or would we be able to maintain our individuality pre-commitment and post? Brad, I don't have a prenup. I'm all in. If I've said yes on everything, I am bullish on my marriage. I plan to be that way till death. I would also argue that counseling is a form of insurance. Trying to avoid the worst case scenario and counseling helps mitigate the likelihood that you end up in the worst case scenario. Thinking about a de-risking framework and choosing a spouse, it's just to show you the flexibility of the framework. Because once you've answered this question, can you deal with DEFCON 1, the worst case scenario that can happen for you in the decision you're about to make and the future consequences, then you're in a good position to act. If you can get past this and your gut's still feeling good, because what's going to happen is even if you get this de-risk framework for yourself, particular types of decisions you're going to be making, whether they be investment in real estate, investment in security, stock market, or if they're a spousal relationship, it puts you in a position to have strength. And the strength comes from the thoughtfulness of taking action. It's important to act in order to garnish the wisdom from experience. That's true. But you can make decisions and not learn from them. That's a common practice. Individuals will take action, things will go bad, and they haven't thought about these questions before they start experiencing the reality of the consequences of their actions. We tend to lash out and find a scapegoat. Either we blame ourselves, we start blaming society, we blame others. And ultimately, if you go back to this framework, it helps ground you. So when the storm gets heavy, and it will, you can go back to your why, you can go back to the, your framework and clearly put yourself into question. The world is risky. And even with this framework, shit's going to happen. By taking ownership over the decisions we make, we can learn from our mistakes, taking on student loan debt, whether it's taking on too much house, too big a car. It helps you bring the question back internally. So you are growing, not panicking.